Hello, I'm John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films. I got a few notes for you before the show. First, I want to thank you all for watching. We couldn't do what we do or the amount of things that we do without the support of you, the viewer. If you want to support us financially, which we always appreciate, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fsfilms, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us continue this and all the things that we do. I want to give a special shout out to our $25 supporters, Antitonic, Cat Waterflame, and Samantha Bates. Uh, second, I want to let you all know that we here at Final Show Films are planning a little get-together up at Gen Con this year. That's August 2nd through 5th up at Indianapolis. We're going to be up there sort of hanging out, enjoying the con, spending time together. And if any of you guys want to come up and say hi, please feel free. We don't bite unless you want us to. And if you enjoy whatever it is you're about to watch or listen to, be sure to check out our website at finalshowfilms.com where you can find links to all of our other content, both podcast and video. And be sure to follow me at John A. Bates on Twitter for more updates on all of the content we're creating in the future. In the meantime, thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 33, where this week we'll be talking about Critical Role, episode 33, Reunions. I'm John, the, ex- the executive producer here at Final Show Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and I'm joined today by Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy. I'm uh, J- at thomas 411 mania on Twitter. And episode reunions stars Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxeldon, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Riegel as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Previously on Critical Role, uh, the party found an old lady in a prison cell and distrusted her. To great effect. Like you should. Uh, yeah, like I, I you should. damn well should. <laughs> yes, whenever you find an old lady that's been locked up, she's been locked up for a reason. I uh, mean, that's not inaccurate. <laughs> In real life, maybe not so much. In <laughs> My grandmother used to lock herself in the bathroom a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is true no matter what. The circumstances may however be different. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah. So the another story about a friend of mine who got locked in a bathroom, but that is when that is for a different time when we talk about the dangers of trying crack for the first time. That's for a different podcast. That's uh, I mean, from a critical role perspective, Mercer got locked in the bathroom at one point. He did. Yep. <laughs> Yep, he did. He got himself See? locked in a bathroom and was unable to get out, which was the most critical role thing to ever happen to him. Yep. See me bringing it back on topic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, last week, last week the last week the um, the rebellion against the Briarwoods began in full with a fight against an army of undead skeletons. I say undead skeletons because this was not your science class anatomy skeletons being rolled out towards them. They had armor and weapons and were animated. Um, oh, that I have a plan. I, I have a sudden new plan for the Eberron game. Oh no, it's always a great. That's always a great fake out when you like you walk into a room and there's a skeleton in the corner and the party attacks. And it's like okay, you destroy a skeleton that was hanging on a rack. <laughs> 
congratulations. Somebody's science project will never be the same again. I believe I've done that before, actually. <laughs> you guys sort of... Uh, in one game, somebody stepped around the corner and there was a, a statue there and they just attacked it. It was just a statue. <laughs> I mean... I don't remember who did, though. It had it coming. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, they started the rebellion in full, uh, fought off an army of skeletons and undead giants, and then snuck their way into the catacombs beneath the castle where they found an old lady who was in her cell. Deep in the dungeons of Whitestone Castle, in feigning helping a suspicious old woman out of her cell, Vexalia breaks the lockpick she was using intentionally. The old woman angrily clutches Vex's arm, and the ranger notices a very disturbing sensation, or lack of, from the woman's grip. Then releases her grip, upset at being denied her freedom. As Vex apologizes and mentions they will come back for her, she comes back into the shadows where the rest of Vox Machina are lying in wait. During this exchange, Vax will don has been inspecting the cells for any other signs of life and finding none. Returning to the group, Vex calls out Scanlan and asks how, about how his seeming spell works when it comes to physical contact, knowing that she was expecting to feel both of the woman's hands, but only felt one. Scanlan knows that this was an illusion of some sort, that even if one were to look the same, they won't feel the same in reality. The deduce the woman is definitely being disguised for some illusion, and that she may be a caster. Gathering together, they talk about how to dispel the illusion. Keyleth reveals that she, that she can with dispel magic. Depending on what to do with the old woman, Grog and Scanlan approach, with Keyleth in the shadows ready to cast, and the twins ready to attack with daggers and arrows. As Scanlan is requesting the old woman reveal her true self, or be left, or be left in her cell to die, that they are not fooled by her deception, Keyleth casts dispel magic. Spell hits the woman, and in her place there is now a black-haired adult woman, a little over her, a little over the age of forty, wearing travel clothes and slightly ragged duster coat. Panicked, she steps back, her back hitting the wall, and she realizes that she's been made. Dropping all further pretense, she introduces herself as Anna. She wants to be free, and that she can be of assistance regarding the Briarwoods. Percy, of course, immediately recognizes her as Doctor Anna Ripley. They also notice that her right hand is missing. Uh, now I would like to dip in a little bit <clears throat> for those that run games this sort of thing will happen even when you don't intend it to where there's a mystery or something supposed to be hidden or going on under the surface and your players figure it out now the reasonably certain that matt was prepared for either that she was under an illusion who she said she not Jack. You if are, you present, Jack, you're cutting in and out. I don't, okay, know, I don't know if I don't know if you're hearing weird. the same thing. Oh, Am I still? It's not just yeah. on my side. Yeah, yeah. You're like roboting in and out. Like, are you downloading something in the background? Uh, nope. Mm-mm. Do you have Battle.net still turned on? I don't think I do, but I will check. Yeah, because it definitely it sounds like we're losing you due to like you're downloading something and. Okay. Band- bandwidth is being a problem. Yes. All right. Well, I blame Xfinity. Yeah, you can you can probably blame Xfinity on that. Is this any better? For now, it is. We'll find out when you go back to what you were saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're preparing for your players to not get it right away. If there's something that you want to sort of trot out in front of them and appear in one facet when in reality something else is going on and they manage by dint of good rolling or just insightful roleplay or whatever to pierce your deception, 
let it happen. Don't try and backpedal that. Don't try and uh, blunt their victory or anything. Let it happen. Make it. Let your let your players have their win. If this sort of circumstance happened and they weren't supposed to find out that this was Dr. Ripley until much later down the line, it's kind of a dick move to force the players, in a sense, to either fail or at least not succeed too much out of, quote, respect for your plot that you're trying to push. Make sure that you have backup plans in place for things like that, intended or not, so that if they win, their win works to push the story forward. If they lose, their loss still works to push the story forward. Anyway, that's my little soapbox. And conversely, though, if you have a a mystery that you expect your players to unveil and they just aren't getting it for whatever reason, bear in mind that you have more information than they do. So what might seem like an obvious clue to you may actually not be a clue at all. Um, so... Uh, if you're from this from the DM's perspective, if you're don't, if you're hinging on if you're hinging on your players unraveling a mystery at a certain time frame, sometimes the clues you leave aren't as clear cut as you think they are, and you might need to adjust in the middle of your puzzle in Legit. order to in order to not have your players banging their heads against a wall for five hours and having no fun. Did we ever figure out who Fikir's uh, patron was? Himself. I forget. <laughs> that took a while. Mm-hmm. It did, but that was one that was meant to go for a while. And you were you were all sort of finding clues here and there the whole time, and, and that 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 panned out appropriately, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Anyways, uh, continuing on. Uh, yes, Percy immediately recognizes her as Doctor Anna Ripley, uh, aliens. Uh, Aliens reference. They also notice that her right hand is missing. Percy steps out of the shadows, disguised as a reasonable Whitestone peasant due to his hatted disguise. He threatens Ripley with the fact... Now, now I, I have a question real quick about this. Last week, she saw him as himself. Because last mm-hmm. week, last week, yeah, he had the hatted disguise on, but he wasn't disguised as anything because he didn't think he needed to be. And he stepped forward and actually was part of the conversation with the old lady previously. Then this week he steps away, steps back in, disguised as the Whitestone peasant, as if as as if she hadn't seen him already. And I'm just curious if that was just is that just a continuity error at this point, or did I miss something? Um, let me see if I can no prize this. Um. All right, I'm going to say that somehow due to the darkness of of the area and something with the illusion that Ripley had cast on herself, she was not seen quite clearly and did not recognize anyone in specific. So it enabled him when he stepped forward disguised to have hidden the fact that he was there. Where's my no prize? Uh, here it is. It's no prize. 
You don't lampshade the no prize. <laughs> the no prize is itself a lampshade. You say it's in the mail. That's how this works. It's in the mail. There you go. Okay. For those of you that don't know what yeah, the fuck no, just happened, a- look up Marvel no prize. <laughs> it's a continuity error. Those happen even in the best shows. Yeah. I just wanted to make. I just wanted to clarify that I hadn't missed anything because I it jumped out at me as like a oh wait what, and I think we've talked about continuity errors before. Um, though this might be a good time to revisit that. I don't know, but it happens in the best shows and also shows like Lost. <laughs> Lost is a continuity error. That's a difference, though. <laughs> Lost has no continuity errors. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like I said, it doesn't have any. It is one. Anyways, uh. Percy steps out of the shadows, disguised as a reasonable white stone peasant due to his head of disguise. He threatens Revlu with the fact that she can either die in her cell or convince them why they shouldn't kill her. Vax throws a dagger into the wall, weapon a foot away from Ripley's head. She reaches for the dagger, but is only able to grab the hilt briefly before it teleports back to the rogue. Getting a better look, they notice that she's seen the world due to her features, that she's traveled a lot, which is an interesting... Which is an interesting way to say that she has a weathered-looking face. Yeah. Like, she has, her face appears to be made out of some form of leather, is is the descriptor that could also be used. Woman has seen some shit. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> seeing no other course of action, Ripley keeps her composure and tells them about her role in the Briarwood scheme. She was involved in the role in the fall of the Dorolo family five years prior and helped Silas and Delilah reestablish their rule over the city after its destruction. She was also one of their chief scientific designers for the project beneath the city involving the Ziggurat. Dun dun dun! Ziggurat, capital Z. When pressed for information about the experiment, she mentions that the Briarwoods know more about the reason behind it, uh, that she was not involved with the more intricate details of their plot, other than the construction she was brought in for. He is able to discern that she is telling the truth, but she is un- but is unsure as to what extent. Ripley wasn't concerned with their designs, just the challenge behind the, constru- the, beh- the challenge behind the construction. She notes, she notes that she enjoys challenge, but challenge that pays well, she enjoys even more. Percy presses her on why she's currently in a cell. Ripley tells him that her work was finished and she no longer wanted to stay in the city with an impending battle on the horizon. She prefers not to choose sides nor get involved with any altercation, so she tried to leave, but Professor Anders caught her. Seeking to gain favor with the Briarwoods, the professor threw her into the dungeon to wait out the experiment until its completion. On being asked by Vex why she lost her hand, she does not go into detail other than the fact that the experimentations can be dangerous. She dabbles with chemical and alchemical reagents that could be miscalculated and that she had to pay the price until she could find a way to fix it. Grog asks if she's seeking revenge against her former employers, and she mentions that perhaps she would based on the treatment she endured. Percy then asks if she can lead them to Cassandra de Rolo. Curious, she says she can and asks why. To which the disguised gunslinger replies that accepting would be worth her life. Ripley requests that uh, that the party free her again, but Percy steps forward and stares her deeply in the eye, saying, You should know who your friends are. Do you know that we're friends? In the process, he casts friends, which is... People people quite often do that when they're casting friends in D&D for some reason. They try to work the word friends into a sentence. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, you can, if you like wordplay. It's just something that I notice. Every time someone casts friends, at least in Critical Role, as far as I can recall, every time someone casts friends, they try to make the word friends work in a sentence. <laughs> it's just funny to me. Uh... 
So yes, he cast making friends a thing. He stop trying to make friends a thing. Um, he casts friends and then asks if he she's been truthful to them. Ripley replies that she has no reason to lie at this point, and reluctantly agrees to aid the party in finding Cassandra. Vex asks the doctor if she's a magic user. Ripley replies that she is a woman of science, that her entire purpose for being in Whitestone was for the experiment, and she has no interest in the arcane, but she is not without her tricks, which is a very, very roundabout way of saying, yes, I have spells. <laughs> if, you, if, you ever want to, if you ever want a character to lie without having, without having to roll a deception roll, talk your way in circles. Uh, vague tweet it. Vague, vague, vague book it, yes. Uh, Percy lays down the terms of her release, that she takes them to Cassandra, she tells them what she knows about what is in the basement, and she tells them more about the Briarwoods, and that she tells them where they can find Anders. And, in exchange, she may be let go, and she may leave the castle. Ripley then asks if they will keep her safe until it's time to part, and they agree. Vex remarks that if that if this that this is Clarota all over again. Um... And to which Percival responds, you are, at the moment, the luckiest person in Whitestone. Do you know why? Because you're at the bottom of my list. And in this case, list is capital L. Percy then removes the head of disguise, revealing his true that, form. That's the name of his gun. That's the name of his gun, yes, yes. Yep. The list. Percy then removes the hat of disguise, revealing his true self to the woman who had tortured him five years ago. Upon seeing him, Ripley is taken aback, smiling and laughing, but not without fear in her eyes and voice. She mentions that she has many questions and found his, his recent work very fascinating. And Percy promises to give her an up-close and very personal demonstration, unless she'd rather talk about other topics. Ripley chooses the latter. The doctor regains her composure and expects to be set free for real. Vax reluctantly gets to work on doing his sister's error and taking <clears> the lock properly, but not before threatening Ripley with the fact that his allies are very good at what they do and that she should tread very carefully. After a couple of minutes, uh, the broken pick is removed and the cell is unlocked. Vax asks Trigger to keep an eye on her as Anna Ripley steps out of her cell, a free woman, but still under the watchful eyes of Vox Machina. Uh, at which point we get another monologue from Percy. Basically saying that if you, you once this is all done, you will leave Whitestone, or I'll kill you. With Percy's threat understood, Percy saying that uh, to shackle her would rouse suspicion. Ripley requests that they stop by her room to gather her things. Party agrees on the stipulation that they never that they that they get them for her, telling Ripley to keep quiet. The party follows the doctor out of the dungeon. Keyleth still feeling cold from her earlier hypothermia. Ripley mentions that Percy to Percy that despite the job paying well and piquing her curiosity, she'd be very happy to see it out of her to see it out of her life forever. Was there something someone wanted to add? Sorry, it sounded like I didn't take a breath there. No, nope. I no. Although I would like to point out that this is very clearly not a Clarota situation because Vexen Vexen and. Um, uh, Keyleth didn't cause it. <laughs> also, nobody is trusting her. <laughs> there is the irony of of Vex saying that it's Clarota all over again. Yeah, there, 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 there is a bit of dramatic irony there. Yes. Um. Also, like as I said, nobody in the, in this this is very different from Clarota because in this particular case, nobody is trusting Ripley. Which, fair enough, you know. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Legit. Going down a hallway, Ripley approaches the door at the end, opening it and taking a peek, only to notice an empty hall. The group steps out into an entrance chamber within Castle Whitestone. They quickly survey their immediate surroundings and find they are alone, the room empty and eerily quiet, with the exception of of their very soft footsteps. 
Ripley notes that there are usually more individuals within the halls. The party suspects that that's due to the rebellion happening outside. Vax looks around, but there are still no signs of life. Knowing the time of the that blah, blah, as I trip over my own tongue, knowing that you are good with the words, I good with the uh, considering how many I have to say in this podcast. <laughs> Knowing the time is of the essence, the party debates why they're going to Ripley's chambers. Percy is insistent on seeing Ripley's work for himself, and then he takes the list and presses the barrel gently into her back, mentioning that it's not personal, he's simply a little nervous. Ripley voices her understanding, and they continue onwards towards her room, the doctor very conscious of the weapon in her back, and of the group itself. Vax checks one of the rooms in the hall and opens the door, revealing it to be a music room. Vax accompanies her and the two inspect the room further, looking out the window and noticing sounds of the Whitestone Rebellion coming from the outside. Vax resists the urge to loot the room due to it being Percy's home. As they leave, Vax voices his concerns to his sister uh, about not having a good feeling and thus giving her the uh, cloak of cloak of kind. wasn't yes, yeah. which assists with sneaky stealthy stuff. Yep, yep, advantage on stealth checks. Yep. Vex puts the hood up of the cloak, and the twins step out into the hallway. Pike, still in her astral state, stops walking, lost in thought. She knows that there is a great evil there, and her form begins to flicker and shake. She's only able to get out that something is willing her away as her form ultimately vanishes. Pike limits the loss of their friend's presence as Vax notices a warmth on his hand, a symbol of serenity on his glove, pulsing with a faint light. As it seems that, while it didn't work previously, for whatever reason... Pike, Pike, Pike Van Helsing left him a present. Yes. Pike left him, left him present. Moving on ahead now without the cleric, Percy shifts his disguise to that of a Whitestone Castle guard and lowers his weapon, Ripley breathing a sigh of relief. As they keep moving, they notice the closed front doors of the castle and Grog tosses ten caltrops towards the door. Vax follows suit with thirty more, noting the good idea Grog had. Caltrops are one of those things that don't get used very often in D&D. That, that and the bags of ten thousand ball bearings. But they're always... Yeah, they're one of those things... They're one of those things that gets used much more frequently at lower levels, but then you sort of, for whatever reason, seem to outgrow them. That's because both of them are DC 10. Right. Like, to avoid. And by the time you hit, like, level 7 or so, DC 10 is almost rote, both for you and your opponents. By the time you hit level 5, DC 10 isn't that big of a deal anymore. Yeah. Well, but I am of the opinion that bags of ball bearings have tons of uses that don't just involve people slipping on them. It's true. For example, you can pour a bunch of them into a flask of oil and cap that flask of oil, and you have made a fragmentation grenade. <laughs> Marginally. I mean, you have to light it on fire and shit. And yes, of course, you have to light it on cave, fire. But and, still... And, and, Yes, <laughs> there are there are they they have a lot of different uses, but one of the reasons why they don't get used very often is because they are sort of uh, their their stated intent is is fairly easily overcome after the first five levels. Um, yep. which is why I like to modify mechanics on that, and basically, personally, prefer a having a placement check where the individual employing them makes a check, which then sets the DC for anybody encountering the hazard. I like to, for, for me, uh, I like to reward creative thinking. So mm -hmm. if, if you just toss down caltrops, I'm probably going to have them have their default checked spot. 
But if you like go if you like go out of your way to get like a big shag rug and like disperse the caltrops throughout the shag rug, I'm probably going to have the 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 uh, enemies miss them because a you took the time to be creative with it, and b it's actually hard to spot shit in a shag rug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No, that's true. So like there, yeah. I, yeah. I like I. Li- I like taking those, and, and this works in both a uh, both a role playing and a narrative aspect. Really, if you can take these things that everybody expects adventures to have, um, and I feel like I feel like the ball bearings or the caltrips is something that is a fairly well established. Like if most people who read fantasy or 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 play role playing games or even read any kind of genre fiction really probably expects that if the roguish person in the in 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 the group opens their bag they're going to have something like ball bearings or something like that in there it, yeah. it's that well established of a thing so w- what i always love and how you keep those characters relevant and build them up in terms of um, uh, through throughout your story arc, as you know, more than just the guy with the knives who's sneaky, like somebody who's actually you, you know creative and cunning and ingenuitive, um, is finding the criminal ways- version of Inspector Gadget. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, is it, finding ways to take those things that are really not that useful outside of like the the first half of your book or the you know the 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 first act of your uh of your campaign and come up with fun interesting ways to use them in a really useful context i have, um i have three particular instances that i always like to reference whenever we're just people talk about using caltrops and ball bearings and things like that in interesting ways one um a halfling rogue that shot caltrops out of a slingshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically using them as, sl- as as slingshot bullets that do piercing instead of bludgeoning damage, which is, which is in my mind, considering how cheap they are, pretty pretty funny. Um, and two, a uh, person that you that soaked ball bearings in holy oil. And it's like launched them en masse at, at, at zombies and skeletons. Nice. And then four, uh, or sorry, three, uh, someone who uh, swung a set bear trap around by the anchoring chain. Yes. <laughs> as an improvised mason chain. Well, as an improvised bear trap to the face, because then it goes off. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, that that's... That takes yeah. some finesse. Well done. That's that's oh, yeah. like, no, that's an awesomeness. I've had players cabin in the woods. Yeah, like I've had I've had players literally um, <clears throat> spend several hours using charcoal to blacken all of their ball bearings, all ten thousand of them, and then extinguishing the two torches closest to the door, but leaving the ones like halfway down the hall still lit. So that it was much more shadowy at the door where the enemy was going to come through, but it still looked like a lit hall more or less effectively and like really modifying their environment 
to give themselves the best possible chance to have these ball bearings actually be effective. Yep. And at that point, yeah, you got you to gotta reward that. Even if it's just bumping up the, the DC by five or ten points, you know, it, still, just m- make sure that that when they put in the work, they get paid for it. Yeah, creative thinking should be rewarded. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, uh-huh. if it's not, even if it's not explicitly rewarded, implicitly rewarded. Yeah. Yep. And it's a way to really endear... Again, if you're writing, if you're writing or, or or producing something, really a way to endear those kinds of characters to your audience because audiences love that shit. Oh yeah, there's a reason why the first Home Alone movie was well received. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> shit dates back to the Three Stooges, man. Yeah, yeah, and then some. Um, yeah, but yeah. If you, I, I am all in favor of rogues home aloneing all of their traps. Yeah, <laughs> even people who aren't rogues. I have a fighter that does that or tries to. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. If your players are willing to MacGyver, let them MacGyver. You know. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> As they make their way up to the second floor uh, to aid Percy's disguise, Keyleth casts enhance ability to give Percy a boost to his charisma in case they get busted. Slowly, the party makes their way down a long hallway that goes all the way down to the eastern side of the castle. Percy recalls that the hallway contains guest rooms as well as the rooms that housed Frederick DiRolo's study as well as Anders' study. Eventually, they make their way to Ripley's chambers and enter Keyleth and Vax keeping watch outside. Inside Ripley's chamber, Percy notices a lack of decoration compared to the usual way the rooms in the castle are, designed more for function than anything else. He also notices that the vast majority of the room has been converted into an alchemical laboratory, a caustic smell in the air. At the back of the room, Ripley pulls out a small chest as Percy watches on very intently. She opens the chest, pushing the clothing aside and revealing a set of basic leather armor. Percy tells Ripley that he almost killed her in Stillbin not long ago, and she didn't know it was him. Vex takes the leather armor from a begrudging Ripley, reaching into the chest. She pulls out two small glass vials and sets them aside. She then removes the chest's false bottom and pulls out her own work, a metallic metallic weapon similar to the list in in function, but with a single barrel and a rotating chamber. A revolver. A weapon much more refined compared to Percy's style. They also note, Percy, Percy especially, that part of the setup within her room is for the purpose of making and refining ammunition and powder for the weapon. They see, the tape, they see on the table sketches containing outlines and notes of the list, recalled from second-hand accounts, collaborated with a partially unburnt note Percy had found in the temple and cemetery. Percy notes his disappointment in, at how unimaginative her weapon can, is compared to his. Ripley notes that she prefers function, which Percy calls her a hack. When she reaches for the weapon, the party stops her and she is, is informed that it will be given to her when she leaves. She protests that she won't be able to defend herself without it should things go ass up. She correctly assumes that they are here to end the Bradwood's reign, that it won't end peacefully. Vax notes that Grog could kill her at any time. She begrudgingly surrenders the weapon and any available ammunition for it to the party, but they agree to give her the armor as a sign of good faith. Ripley then takes the vials and pouch of money with her. Grog, in, Grog inquires as to what the vials contain. They see one of the vials to be what they recognize as a potion of greater healing. As the second vial, she mentions it being very handy when it comes to escaping. Upon being threatened again, she gives up the two vials, nearly shattering them upon handing them over to Vax. Uh, and them over as Vax notices the second vial is a potion of flying. Uh, Percy takes Ripley's notes and anything else useful with him as they leave, muttering how much he hates what she had done to the room. Vex and Keyleth note that he can always come back and inspect the room once more once the Briarwoods are gone. Uh, and when you're, when, you're making, when you're making compelling villains, having them directly yank stuff out of your player characters' stories is a way to make it personal. 
And I find that players and audiences tend to be much more motivated to care about a villain and stopping them if it gets personal. You know, you want to go for that emotional connection. And having Ripley basically rip off and then somehow manage to, from a certain point of view, improve Percy's designs when... Percy's whole thing is basically I have more or less invented the first guns on this planet. That's that's a very strong personal hook, both into a, a character's identity and into the sort of things by which they define themselves. I have no and idea I think what that, you mean about emotionally investing my players and my villains. I know, I know. <laughs> nobody, nobody really cared about killing that guy in the sandcastle, but we did it anyway. Um, <laughs> Jeremy. <clears throat> um, and honestly, as I was watching this episode, I really felt like you could, you could almost see the alteration on Taliesin's face. Percy has, of course, always hated Dr. Ripley. But right about now was when Taliesin started to really hate Ripley. And it was just, it was really cool to see that, that delineated. Um, and some, some excellent, excellent storytelling skills on, on Mercer's part, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it, in order to, I think one of the things with, with, uh, with villains and antagonists is, you know, creating the or pulling them out of backstory is, is good. It's not your only option, but what they should always do is be a reflection of your 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 heroes, your protagonists. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Whether that's you know, if you look at uh, uh, characters like in, in in you know mainstream uh, media like. Xavier and Magneto. Yeah. Um, obviously, they they have backstory, but that backstory was not part of their original characterization. That's just due to comics retcons and so on and so forth. They mm-hmm. were very much the uh, Ex- Magneto was a reflection of uh, Xavier and how they are polar opposites of the 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 mutant metaphor and mutant rights and, and et cetera. Same thing with um uh Superman and Lex Luthor. You've got the 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 brawn and the the invulnerability and the nobility versus the extreme intelligence and the let's be generous and call it moral flexibility. The, um, the breathtaking lack of empathy? Yes. <laughs> um, I'll say uh, Lex is as flexible. Lex is as morally flexible as I am in my sexual interests. In that he goes every way, pretty much. <laughs> um, and and, and those are comic examples. There's obviously a lot in 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 non-comic stuff, even all the way down to things like. When you're talking about uh, uh, horror films, you know you usually have the 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 slasher killer is some enormous uh, uh, muscular male something something or other versus 
the younger female character who ends up being the 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 infamous the soul survivor. Ever, yeah. yeah, right. Um, creating that dichotomy automatically creates a connection between them. And if you're just throwing in somebody who really doesn't have anything to do with 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 who the um, who the heroes are, it doesn't work. And that's honestly why a lot of a lot of uh, when you look at genre fiction, why it why a lot of it that doesn't work doesn't. That's usually the reason. There's no feeling of connection between those two, at least in a metaphorical sense. <clears throat> Yeah, or like, and to bring it back to Shakespeare, because literally everything, in my opinion, can generally be brought back to Shakespeare. Um, the in terms of having the villain or the antagonist be the foil to the protagonist, uh, in both in the sense that, that they're opposites, but also reflections of each other. Uh, Iago and Othello are a magnificent example of this, mm-hmm. where you have a disenfranchised minority character who has risen um, to a, a level of respect and and honor in a society that is not his own versus a native member of that society who and the accuracy of Othello's or of Iago's perspectives is a matter of much debate um but versus a, a member of that society who at one point had a great deal of respect for this protagonist, but feels that they have lost what aspects of their person persona that the antagonist at one time valued. And therefore, you know, they have, they have sort of in Iago's perspective, Othello has, has lost his teeth almost in a sense. And is is making all the wrong choices now. Now that he's you know sort of retiring from his military uh, career, not uh, being a, an agent of of power and chaos on the battlefield nearly as much, getting married and bullshit like this, and and begins to sort of take it upon himself to deconstruct those aspects to put Othello back in the situations where where Iago first valued him um and of course you know othello gonna othello and everything turns out horrible but but the idea that while very different and with very different objectives these people do come from these two these two characters come from an extremely common background and it's just because of different choices they made at various forks in the road that they encountered that they become such wildly divergent uh, individuals. Uh, yeah. And, and to continue on, because speaking of Shakespeare, uh, Battleshield Films is producing a world's first uh, fully uh, produced live stream on Twitch and YouTube of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, produced in sort of a live, live, in sort of a live television fashion, which will be going up some, which will be going up, uh, in September, keep an eye out for that. But um, also in in his comedies, Shakespeare does this a lot. Uh, in uh, uh-huh. Lysander and Demetrius very much are sort of these two uh, foils to one another, um, who not only 
start out that way, but then as they come, rather than flipping around like these stories often do, they sort of meet in the middle towards the end. But, um, with with Dimitri starting out with all this confidence and bravado, and Lysander starting out kind of whingy, and then both of them eventually meeting together as being, yo, dude, let's smoke some pot and have sex. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. But that's sort of how that's how it goes in those comedies. Anyways. Back to the story at hand. Continuing onward, they head to Cassandra's own chambers as Vax sneaks ahead. They arrive at her door as Percy quickly asks Ripley if there will be anything inside that will cause him to have a violent reaction towards her, which is a very diplomatic way of asking, am I going to want to shoot you after this? Uh, Ripley hopes that there isn't, as Percy (laughs) opens the door, pushing the doctor in as he enters behind her. The room itself is dark, as Grog lights up a torch and hands it to Percy. The torchlight illuminates the room enough for the gunslinger to notice that Cassandra has been in the room recently, but there is no sign of her, currently. He also notices her vanity cabinet and her closet, inspecting the latter and finding it empty with the exception of several outfits. Percy inspects the cabinets and finds several keepsakes, including a partially burnt picture of herself and her family. He also notices a stack of notes that were addressed to Archibald Desne. Uh, they contain details about the general unrest in the city, preparation for a possible rebellion, and past failures. Based on the notes, she has been working with Archibald in various attempts to overthrow the Briarwoods with no success. Percy laments that she's not present. Ripley assumes that she could be elsewhere within the castle. When asked where she could be, Ripley claims that she prefers not to pay attention to the well-being of others, only that she is usually in her room. Percy then starts to lose patience uh, and threatens her again. Um, giving in to Percy's threat, Ripley mentions that Cassandra is not allowed anywhere near the ziggurat or the distillery. He lowers the weapon to allow her to explain. The distillery is the project that Ripley has been working on with the Briarwoods. When she was brought in, she was tasked with creating an acid meant to dissolve the white stone within the region and distill it. The, re- the resulting residuum <clears throat> would allow for the bulk creation of a very powerful magical essence for use in construction of materials they can instill and use apparently for the ziggurat and other such things. Ripley notes that they were ahead of schedule weeks ago, thus she was no longer needed. Keyleth presses Ripley further about the schedule. Ripley elaborates that they were attempting to create enough continuous acid to develop enough residuum to be used in the reconstruction of the ziggurat. Once enough, once enough was developed so that there was no need to create more, her job was done. Hearing this, Scanlan pulls out his potion of acid resistance and drinks it. They press her for more information on the Zagrat's purpose. Uh, Ripley has nothing to give other than it's related to the Briarwood scheme involving a third party and that she also has no information on that either, considering that she was never interested. As, locations, as to the location of the Zagrat, Ripley knows that it is past the distillery underground, most likely directly underneath the sun tree and Whitestone itself. Upon being asked, Ripley confirms again that the melting process has concluded and that there is still a surplus of acid beneath the castle. Party bids to fear the worst makes plan to peruse the Briarwoods downstairs beneath the castle, but Ripley mentions Professor Anders. Hearing his name stokes Percy's ang- anger as Ripley smiles, continuing to bait him as the party tries to convince that the Briarwoods the primary target, not Anders. Falling for Ripley's bait, Percy asks where Cassandra would be. The doctor replies that she would probably be in Anders' study. Vex silences her by threatening to shoot her. Scanlan asks where Anders would be, and Ripley answers that he would be in the study as well. Despite Keyleth's protests, the party heads towards the basement as Vax is urged by his sister to sneak off down another hall towards the direction of Anders' study. Following the direction that was described, Vax puts on Clorota's helmet in addition to the cloak he had taken from Count Tyleri's coffin. As he nears the double doors that lead to Anders' study, he hears a muffled female voice from behind them, leans into the doors, and listens in for a full minute. He's able to pick up two voices in the room, one of them being a young girl and the other being an older male, ordering her to be quiet until until ordered to speak and that they should be close. 
Max gently creaks the door open, just enough to peer inside. Notice the two individuals in the, in the center of the study. The male, Professor Anders, is holding the girl, almost like Cassandra, by the hair by, by the hair with a dagger to the throat. He then orders her to say exactly what she was told to say, the girl crying out in a gasp. Vax backs away five steps, grabs his ear in a whisper, and mutters Jenga. Fighter receives the message and immediately runn back down the halls to rendezvous with the rogue. Having sent the message, Vax kicks the doors open and immediately throws two daggers at Anders, despite having substantial cover by holding the girl close. Due to Vax's keen marksmanship with a thrown blade, the dagger strike true. The first dagger gouges his left eye as the second dagger hits him in the shoulder. As the blades teleport back to their wielder, Cassandra is only able to get out no run. It's a trap before Anders takes his dagger and slits her throat. Two sources. Have I, have I mentioned that I love Vax? <laughs> <laughs> Make all the stupid choices. One of those things for all the right reasons. For this, all the right reasons, yeah. And that's a fairly common trope, uh, I find. Mm-hmm. The uh, the kick in the door, take out the bad guy before he can hurt the hostage. Only for him to then right. not die and kill the hostage. Yeah. Um, but do it, do it, doing the wrong thing for the right reason is one of those... And I feel like it's a fairly Western perspective. You know, cultures that vary... Uh, on their their judgment of whether or not independent thought and disobeying the rules because you think you know better is a good thing, tend to have a a, a slightly more tenuous relationship with this trope. But well, and um, it, it, I find the trope is fairly universal. It just it depends on what you think the wrong thing is. Um, there it's just that what is the wrong thing changes as you cross cultural boundaries, but. Mm-hmm. That it happens for the sake of the greater good still happens. It's still pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that, for instance, in, in Eastern mythology and Eastern storytelling, it might be, le- you know, sacrificing a child to a water demon so that it doesn't flood your town. As right. opposed to trying to kill the water demon so it doesn't flood your town. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I was a little sad that we didn't get a shoot the hostage moment here. So. <laughs> I mean, Percy wasn't there. Vax. I, yeah, I, I feel. Li- I feel <laughs> like if if Scanlan had been there, maybe because it's the kind of pop culture thing that 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 Sam loves to play with. Lightning bolt um, through the hostage. I mean, I have. I've yet to have that happen in D and D game. D- yeah, because it's a lightning bolt. Lightning bolt through the hostage. It's okay. We can revive them later. <laughs> Jesus Christ! We do. We don't have to resurrect everybody, you know. <laughs> Just really, the ones we care about. I really want that. Now, now I think about. It, I really want the party that does that as their thing. <laughs> like, just like. It's okay if the hostage dies. The cleric has diamonds. We can just resurrect them. <laughs> um, that yeah. Seems, oh. That seems like an evil. That seems like an evil party thing. Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, that's why I want to play an evil D and D campaign. But we're too much of a goody two shoes. <laughs> Wait, what? We are we are not we are not remotely are too you... much of a goody two shoes group for that. It's just that knowing everybody who plays in our games, 
the entire party will have killed the entire rest of the party yeah. by about episode two. That is the We're problem. evil enough for it. This group the problem is... Yeah. <laughs> this group plots against each other en masse when it's... As a matter when of When they are good course. characters. Well, that's the thing, though. See, if we wouldn't kill each other three episodes in, because we'd spend the first 24 episodes plotting. <laughs> I think you overestimate the amount of time we spend on our plotting. The reason that we spend so much time is that we can't really do it. Because <laughs> we're good. Because we're, we're hampered by our goddamn ethics. I will simply refer all of our listeners to Eberron and ask them how long they think we spend on our plotting. <laughs> Again, that's because nobody has the nobody is quite evil enough to go to the person who just keeps arguing, pulling a Salida and like hold person. Okay, we're doing this now, <laughs> or <laughs> pulling a slightly more ruthless thing and finger of death. Anybody else disagree? <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I got two more spell slots. Oh, the the necker that's when the necromancer summons their undead horde and has them hold everybody to attention. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, uh in Razor Sings, Cassandra grievously wounded. Uh uh Vax runs into the study, barely evading a trap of freezing cold magic, and stabs the professor repeatedly as he drops Cassandra to the ground. Vax then notices two suits of armor, the sources of the metal noise being two helmed horrors, suddenly coming to life and approaching him. Angered at the sudden assault, Anders attempts to cast confusion, but thanks to the hero's feast fortifying his willpower, the rogue shrugs off the mental assault. Anders backs away as Vax takes a swipe, and then and then he inspires one of the helmed horrors to defeat Vax. Uh, the creatures then approach uh, and attack Vax with their longsword, second horror striking true with its two strikes. Cassandra clutches her bleeding throat, not unconscious yet, but barely clinging to life, as she tries to put her vocal cords back inside her body. As they run to the study, Percy turns to Ripley and tells her that if Cassandra lives and the doctor takes them to the caverns beneath, she'll walk away she'll walk with her things and goes into a full she'll walk with her things and goes into a full sprint down the hall. Meanwhile, shrugging off the attacks, Vax takes his last potion of healing and feeds it to Cassandra. The potion seals her neck wound, keeping her alive for the moment, as Vax places himself between the horrors and her. Frog sprints in the study and witnesses the grisly scene, Scanlan trailing behind and inspiring Vex. The barbarian prepares yep. to enter the fray, but Anders casts Dominate, Dominate Person on the Goliath, who easily falls prey to the spell. He then orders the dominated Grog to kill Vax, who looks at the Goliath with trepidation. The helmed horrors then surround Vax, and while the first one misses, the second one strikes again strikes true with its weapon and deals heavy damage to the rogue. Hela sprints down the hall, sees Cassandra, and casts healing word on her. Vax orders Trigget to clamp down onto Ripley's arm, and to clamp onto Ripley's arm, and then she sprints down down the hall as well. Ripley, now held by Trigget, stays put, nervous without her weapon in hand. Percy runs into the study, notices his barely conscious sister, and then looks towards Anders, pulling off his hat of disguise. The smoke from before billows out of his body and begins to encompass him, only now more intense due to his rage. Anders looks to the source of the smoke and is shocked at seeing his former pupil, whom he had betrayed five years ago, alive and ready to take his life. But as Percy brings up the list and pulls the trigger, the gun misfires. Percy screams in anger as he's forced to repair the weapon. 
Screams sounding more like a roar that shakes Anders to his core as Professor finds himself trapped. A wounded Vax disengages from the Hound Horse and stabs Anders twice, but Anders maintains concentration on the spell. Behind him, the dominated Grog approaches Vax and smashes him twice with his firebrand warhammer. Despite the assault, Vax barely clings to consciousness. Grog manages to break free of the spell's hold, and despite feeling bad for Vax, he can't help but laugh a little, because Grog is an asshole. <laughs> Also, he just beat the shit out of the guy who's been pranking him almost incessantly for the past month and a half. It's true. That also. Perhaps if you didn't have a prank war, you'd feel worse about hitting your friend. (laughs) Whether or not that's advice against or in favor of a prank war, we leave up to the audience. Yes. Indeed. Scanlan finally makes his way to the doors and sees the entire room. Unable to determine Vax's current state, he pulls out his wand of magic missiles and fires three darts at each hound horror. It inspires Grog with a tune that is not quite the Goliath's Jam, uh, which I believe is uh, Aquarius slash Let the Sun Shine In. Yes. Age of Aquarius. Yep. Yeah. Uh, although it's Egrogius instead of Aquarius. Well, yeah, you know. Anders, unable to find any other way out, attempts to cast a mission door, but Scanlan, innately familiar with the spell, blows his broken shaman and casts Counterspell. A sudden noise disrupting his concentration, the door slams shut. Angrily, the professor then inspires the other helmed horror. It appears that the professor is a bard. One of the horrors goes for Vax, and the other going for Percy. While attacking Vax, lands a blow on him, the rogue unable to stand any longer and falling unconscious. Creature that stabs him while he's unconscious, bringing the rogue even closer to death's door. The second horror manages to strike at Percy with his longsword twice, but the gunslinger shrugs off the attack, his entire focus directed on towards repairing the list. Seeing Vax goes down and suffer a near-fatal wound, Keyleth immediately casts Healing Word on him and then casts Grasping Vine to grab Cassandra's ankle and pull the human towards her. At the same time, seeing her brother fall, Vex screams and slides towards him, casting Cure Wounds once he's within her grasp. The combined healing energies from the female half-elves manages to wake up the badly wounded rogue. Out in the hall, as Trinket is dragging Ripley, the doctor breaks free of Trinket's jaws and reaches into her pocket. She then throws a stone onto the ground, the stone detonating and releasing a hot fog-like substance. Shrugging off Trinket's retaliatory strike, retaliatory strike, Anna Ripley makes her escape. Percy manages to repair the list and rushes towards Professor Anders, pushing the helmed horror away, unloading and stepping closer towards the professor with each successive shot. Uh, the first bla- the first shot blasts out the shoulder, the bone exposed, and the breastplate sundered. Anders, despite the odds, stands to find as Percy approaches. Percy shouts, traitor, as he fires a second shot, the bullet bending his breastplate inward. Anders spits out blood from the sudden wound and maintains his defiance, the gunslinger lowering his mask as Anders, uh, attempts to monologue at Percy. While being shot. While being <laughs> shot. Percival, you just Which is all. very dramatic. Oh yeah, it's very, it's very, um, uh, um, like gladiator taking his final bow kind of thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, personally, you disappoint us all. All you had to do was die like a good Dorolo. The land has a greater destiny. You and that full Ripley, you place your faith in toys and dust. You seek the transient truths. I die to rise again. We are his blood. Percy jams the list into Anders' mouth, shutting him up and saying, you're the face I saw when murder entered my heart. This is your doing. Fires his third shot, blowing the back of Anders' head off and killing the traitor that ate his family's destruction. Holding the list with a shaky hand, he notices much like Carrion Stone fell before him, Anders' name vanishing from the barrel. Smokes besides his first fellow Frederickstein, von Musel Klausowski, Dorello III stands there, motionless. Managing to stand up, Vax darts away from the hound horror that nearly slew him and throws a dagger that strikes true. Grog goes into a rage and smashes the horror next to him with a warhammer. Scanlan approaches the nearby creature and casts Thunder Wave to knock it back, but it, but it easily shrugs off the attack and slashes Scanlan in retaliation as the other horror slashes at Grog, all the hits hitting their intended targets. 
Keyleth, maintaining concentration on grasping the vine, grabs the helmed horror next to Scanlan and drags it towards her, then attempts to hit it with her staff, but the attack is deflected easily due to how thick the armor is. Vax, kneeling next to a smoke-covered Percy, grabs his hand. Uh, the ranger then then darts past the armor next to her, taking the attack of opportunity, and fires two arrows that finally fell the creature, which falls to pieces. Anna Ripley completely evades Shrink at second, attempting to attempt attacking and sprints away. Percy removes the mask and unloads his remaining shots at the remaining, at the remaining helmed horror, but none manage to damage it. Vax walks along the wall, unable to attack from a distance, and heads to Scanlan. Grog directs his attention to the remaining horror and smashes it twice with the warhammer. Scanlan jumps onto Grog's knee with a singing with a with a singing dawn blade and attempts to strike, but realizing Pike isn't around to witness it, fails to hit the armor, which manages to land a retaliatory strike on the bard. One of the very few times that Scanlan has ever made a melee attack. <laughs> yep. Um. Keyleth once more tries to hit it with her staff, but still has no effect. Vex casts, casts Hunter's Mark and fires two more arrows, the first bouncing off harmlessly, but the second one managing to strike some sort of arcane core, as, like the other Hound Horror, it falls apart and collapses to the ground. With the brutal battle over, Trinket does his best to pursue Ripley following her scent. Back, to, back in the study, Keyleth inspects that Cassandra is fine as Grog and Scanlan leave the room and pursue Ripley as well. The resulting inspection showing that Cassandra is no longer in danger of dying. Percy's cleaning himself of his blood and gore. Vax, clutching his wounds, stumbles over to Keyleth and admits his love for her. Keyleth is completely taken, taken by surprise at Vax's sudden confession as the rogue kisses her, stunning everyone in the room. Wow, we're only halfway through this episode. <laughs> Fuck. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a lot that happens in this episode. <laughs> Jesus Christ, people. Ah, we want to talk about sudden confessions of love. I mean... I know for how to put this um things like this I think are one of the more polarizing elements of genre storytelling um I love it and I love this particular one because I am a Vax ship. Uh, and was from like episode five. I don't know why. I just was. Um, but I have always found stories, stories with large group dynamics tend to get a lot more interesting when you have a variety of relationship dynamics within the group. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're all just friends, then you know obviously there are as many different varieties of friends as there friend dynamics as there are people. But it becomes infinitely more interesting, and the stakes for the for for games or uh, stories get a lot higher when relationships get. More intense. It would probably be the best way to describe it. Uh, when when things take on a a romantic situation, or when it's discovered that the farm boy and the princess are 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 are, are siblings, um, or whatever the case may be. Was that That's um, not a read on the Princess Bride that I've ever heard before, but okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's the fanfic version. Um, uh, okay, okay. You know, I was just thinking, it would be nice if in our if in our games we actually did have a group of people who were just friends. We had people, a group of people who were friends. That would be a first. <laughs> <laughs> No, I feel like are they contentious friends most of the time? Yes. But I feel like a lot of our groups are that way. Like you said, as many different types of friends as there are people in the universe. Um, But adding this element, not only is a great, uh, well, it's Spoiler alert, the opportunity for serious de- serious plot, storyline, and character development going forward from here, but is also a, um, a recontextualizes those characters instantly in that moment. Mm-hmm. It immediately represents a pretty seismic shift in how you see these characters. Um, and I, like I said, I know it's, it's always, and it can lead to, because when relationships come into it, you can almost guarantee that the emo level is going to go up. And at some point, somebody's going to be really morose about something. I know people that hate that and hate what it does to shows like Arrow or, um, uh, <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um or, or 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 any such show. Um for me, I love it, and I think that this moment here was a beautiful time for it to be revealed. Wonderfully dramatic. Um and 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 just all around great. Um, I'm pretty much with Jeremy on this one as well. Uh, the, the variation in relationships, especially in character-driven genre fiction, which is one of those areas I find that fans of a work have very strong and very differing opinions both on which characters they like or don't and why, and which characters they enjoy watching interact or don't and why. So when something like this happens, it immediately begins to, at least amongst a fan base in general, draw some lines in the sand. Uh, I'm with Jeremy. I think the the Vax-Keyleth relationship is one that was definitely earned, uh, definitely handled very well, um, definitely had a, a highly three-dimensional aspect to it. It wasn't shallow, um, and it gave a very nice contour to the narrative without overshadowing the narrative. This does not become the Vax and Keyless show. Um, but it's one of those things that definitely changes the tone and sort of becomes a touchstone for every other member of Vox Machina in terms of how they see that the group dynamic has shifted. It's also excellent because you have, in a sense, competing relationships as well. If it's 
a group of, say, five to seven otherwise unrelated characters who just happen to be working together, and then two of them pair off, that's that has an aspect of reality to it. Um, but it's really just adding another string to the bow. Whereas something like this, you have Vax, who has a a good, a fairly good relationship with everybody in the group, but an obviously and a easily distinguishably stronger relationship with his sister, uh, Lara Bailey's character Vex. So adding the Vax Keyleth romance to it now suddenly, not only does it change the group as a whole, but for Vax's character, suddenly forces him to consider because this is western society and we always categorize and prioritize everything how does my relationship with Keyleth now affect and or alter sister and there's an excellent level of conflict there Um, it also forces Vex to look at her brother and say I am potentially no longer the easily most important female or even person in his life how does my character feel about that how is my character going to react to that um and then of course keyleth who is just socially awkward all the time now has somebody who she has in the group always really kind of i think i feel like the keyleth vex relationship up to this point has been very positive um and very genuine but there's a level of tentativeness now uh, where Keyleth is uncertain as to how Vex views her now re- in comparison to how she did a month ago. Um, so the, the, the depth and dynamics that it brings to a group can be very, very good. Um, I also like the way it was revealed as well. I'm not a huge fan of the slow burn um, of relationship where everybody knows it's going on, but just nobody's saying anything. I feel like this sort of reveal is much better where it was very subtextual for the most part. Um, you had to be really watching in order to, to pick up on the hints, and then Vax just sees a moment and goes for it. And all of a sudden, now it's out in the open, and now it's something that nobody can ignore. Um, and, and it's, it's something that is definitely going to, to sort of define the group to an extent going forward. The, the risk with something like this, uh, when you incorporate it is whether or not it's going to overshadow things, uh, that, that are viably important both to the narrative and to the other characters in the story. A lot of modern Western uh, entertainment, usually there's one, maybe two romantic relationships that sort of take front and center place. Uh, and the participants in those relationships generally are very clearly and obviously the main characters. Uh, you know, the, the formulaic rom-com structuring uh, where you've got a guy and a girl and the entire movie is about technically this guy and this girl and their relationship and everybody else is more or less incidental. That's That works fine for a formulaic narrative construction like a rom-com. It's something that you probably don't want to have happening in your tabletop game because all of a sudden 
you don't want to relegate all but two of your players to second string. Um, that's that's generally not going to be fun for them. So what you have to worry about if you're creating or or composing this sort of narrative is um, given the Western obsession with romance stories, how do I make it so that this contributes to and doesn't overshadow the narrative that I'm that I'm telling? Now, if the narrative you're telling is just a romance story, you don't have to worry about that nearly as much. Um, but in games like this and in a lot of works of fiction, there might be a romance aspect, but that's not usually the entire point of the entire story the entire tale that you're trying to tell. So you got to be careful. Yep. Yep. Moving on. Uh, Breaking the unexpected kiss, Keyleth is utterly red-faced as she looks at a badly wounded Vax. The remarks that her ability to transform is really cool before noting his rapid blood loss. Keyleth, still stuck in the moment, casts Cure Wounds on him. Vax, unable to witness his moment any longer, walks out of the room to follow Grog, Scanlan, and Trinket as they continue to pursue Ripley. As Keyleth finishes casting the spell, Percy gathers a bundles of Rex's arrows and starts whacking Vax on the chest with it, chastising him for being reckless, especially with Cassandra's life being in danger. Keyleth backs away as the moment is ruined, because Percy is good at ruining moments, both her and Vax pointing out that the younger Dorolo would have died if he hadn't taken action. Regardless, Percy thanks Vax for his action, asks him to count ten next time, and walks over to Cassandra. The two of them tearfully embrace, finally reunited for the first time in five years as Percy apologizes to his sister, noting that his sister has changed considerably compared to the happy little girl she once was. Cassandra's relieved, happy that both she and her brother are still alive despite their differing circumstances before turning stoic. She tells her brother that he shouldn't even be here, that they were using her as bait for the trap which nearly killed Vax. Upon being asked if she's herself, she affirms that she is, but despite her words, Percy gleams into her demeanor and can't seem to find any sort of deceit in her expression or tone, again sadly noticing the change in his sister compared to five years ago. Percy assures Cassandra that they are putting an end to the Briarwoods tonight before the sun sets and that they will stop their plot from coming to, fr- to fruition. Cassandra knows that she and the populace have already tried twice and failed, but he again assures her that this is it. Cassandra tells Percy that he left her pot to possibly die, which Percy apologizes for. She steals herself and declares that she will be joining Vox Machina into the catacombs. Percy protests that she will not, which that she will go to her room. Cassandra agrees that she will, not to rest but to gather her things and the armor that's belonged to their mother, Joanna Dorolo. Despite Percy's protest, the Yard Roller reminds him that she's been fighting the Briarwoods for far longer, that if their goals are to save Whites and are aligned, then they should do so together. She then points out that she doesn't have to listen to Percy, and the gunslinger, exasperated, finally acquiesces as she heads to her room to prepare. Um... Meanwhile, Vax, Vex, Ke- Vex, not Vax, catches up to Grog and Scandalous Trinket continues to pursue Ripley, but the doctor manages to evade the Caltrops place the threat doors earlier, slip through the cracks, and escape out, out into the city. Trinket also avoids the Caltrops and forces his way through the doors, but by the time the four gather together, Ripley's already long gone. Vex notices the sound of struggle happening in the city with no clear way to determine which side is winning. Vex whistles for Trinket to return inside, the four of them giving up their chase. As they head back to the study, Vax, Keyleth, and Percy take a while to rest to bandage their wounds while they wait for Cassandra. Vex's group comes back and informs them that Ripley is already gone. Percy can see that Ripley is not a priority compared to the danger that lies beneath them. Percy requests that Grog set Anders' body on fire, but before he does, Vex loots the body and Luke takes his boots as well as a handful of gold pieces. Scanlan identifies the boots as being boots of levitation. He and Vax t- then look around the study for anything else. Vax notices one of the drawers in the desk is locked, and upon inspecting it, uh, inspecting it sees the drawer is trapped. With these, he disarms the trap and discovers that it was meant to fire a poisonous bolt at whoever would set it off. Vax then locks the drawer and opens it, revealing a collection of letters. Percy walks over and shares his finding with the party. 
Many of the letters detail a slew of disconcerting things, such as the removal of key magical defenses during a political meeting in Iman to ensure that certain individuals and safeguards that are usually made during said meetings were not present during that endeavor. The party discerns that this can be evidence that will clear their names. The letters also go into detail about the best construction method used to mine whitestone and repairs for the mon- and repairs for the mon- uh, for the months in the ziggurat. In repairs for the months in the ziggurat, as well as multiple warnings to Anders over the years about the arrival of secret Asum and Ring spies. In addition, there are letters that talk about plotting and diverting political attention away from Whitestone to leave it a political enigma, and letters about planting information within Wildmount that would lead their investigation that their investigation team to believe that the Briarwoods had been found dead. And throughout these letters are mentions that the Undying King shall return, we are his blood. The letters are not signed, but they are in the same handwriting. They also find one unrelated letter that talks about the business ledgers related to the construction of the bridge between Wildmount and Mon, as well as future plans related to the construction and the letter signed Lord Riskel Daxio. The party d- realized that Daxio is a member of the Taldori Council, and therefore deduced that he is a spy for the Briarwoods. They also remember that he oversaw the construction of Grayskull Keep. As soon as Kaelin hears this, he describes the sky back at the keep, and after a while he sees nothing suspicious happening in the kitchen. The keep appears to be safe. Rogden sets Andrew's body on fire, and, th- and then asks Percy if they can go down to the caverns beneath the castle. Before he can answer, Cassandra appears in the doorway, saying that she can. Hair pulling, uh, uh, the she can, hair pulling back, hair pulled back and tied off, wearing ornate armor and wielding a sheathed short sword and dagger. Grog inspects her neck and does not see any bite marks. As Cassandra begins leading the party to the Undercroft, Vex asks if there are any more traps that can be expected. Cassandra says that she's not aware of any, but knowing the Briarwoods, there no doubt will be. So she warns the party to be prepared for anything. As they proceed to the Undercroft, Scanlan asks Percy for Ripley's pistol. Percy points out that, they would, that he would have to train him how to use it, but Scanlan says that it's easy, just point and pull the trigger and shoot. Reluctantly, Vex hands the pistol to Scanlan, who spins it, holsters it in his pocket, and ends up pulling the trigger. Fortunately, the gun is not loaded. When Scanlan asks for ammunition, <laughs> it would have hurt. When Scanlan asks for ammunition, Percy starts handing him some, but Vax takes the gun away from him, and Vex takes it back. Uh, Cassandra's ordeal. Oh, sorry, that's the name. That's the Ted. After taking the... Um, yep, go ahead. Look at Discord. Um... I feel like we're just speed reading through this so we can finish. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, we're not going to get any actual analysis at this point. So we're going to we're yeah. going to stop mm-hmm. there and come back next week for part two of reunions because yeah, there's a still a fuck ton to go. Because yeah, there is a shit ton more to to cover and some very interesting deconstruction that we can do as well. Yep. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we'll go ahead and break this for now and come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to keep it all in one episode, damn it. Ah, well, well, when the fucking episode is like, what, five hours? Something like yeah, that? It's, something it's like that. 24 minutes. One of their longer episodes, And yes. not, not really a lot of combat, unlike the usual four or five hour ones. Yep. Mm-hmm. Alright, so we'll be back next week with episode 33, part two. <laughs> Yep. Just throw off the numbering again, damn it. <laughs> yes, it will. Uh, all right. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, goodbye. everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>